poet, a man of letters and a bevy of booksellers. Everyone's a critic in this month's Vintage Podcast. Welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark, which this month looks forward to some of the treats coming up in 2016. We'll be celebrating another Poetry Prize success for Sarah Howe, and we'll be looking at literary life in Britain over the last century with DJ Taylor. Will Rycroft is back in the studio with me again. Happy New Year, Will. Happy New Year, Alex. Did you have a good Christmas? I did. I wish I could say that I spent every single waking moment reading books, <laughs> but I didn't. No, it's hard because of all those people aren't there, in, the, in the house, all that thing you have to do over Christmas. I'm quite good, you see, at putting up my book barrier. I, I'm reading, it says. You uh, retreated to the armchair. I kind of did a bit, which makes me sound like a bit of an old fogey, but I, I wanted to do a lot of reading, so I, I sat in the chair. Box of matchmakers. Oh, don't. Yes, probably several boxes of matchmakers. And uh, yeah, read. Read lots, um, which was great. And then suddenly it was over. Christmas had happened and we were back at work. It was interesting how many book-related adaptations were on at Christmas or started over Christmas, yes. wasn't it? Well, there was that huge Dickensian, which, of course, you know, was bringing together all of these different characters from Dickens. It's a kind of wonderful idea, in yeah, a way. absolutely. And amazing casts. I mean, I keep seeing these amazing casts. We've got War and Peace happening at the moment, which is... In fact, there was an article saying that it was confusing because some of the same actors from Dickensian were in War and Peace. And so people were getting a bit confused about what programme it was they were actually watching. Because Stephen Ray is quite a recognisable face. and he Listeners, was in listeners, those. if you get confused, just read the book just instead. <laughs> I have to say that is the policy that I am following with War and Peace because I don't quite have the belief that you can condense such an enormous book into such a, a, a few uh, hours, do you think? Oh, well, I was surprised, yeah, because it's, what is it, six episodes of an hour each? So, yeah, condensing War and Peace into six hours seems a bit of a... Tall order. I mean, Andrew Davis, of course, is a an amazing adapter of of books, so he's the man you'd want to do it. But yeah, I mean, I, I've watched the first two episodes now, and they're doing a very good job of of cramming it all in there. Um, but I do remember reading that book. I can't remember how long it took me. It took me more than six hours. I know that much. But it was just—it's a thing to dive into and just wallow in. It's just an extraordinary book. So I think well worth reading at some point in your life. You'll but. see. Will operates at a, a much higher intellectual pressure than I do. <laughs> there you were, busy with War and Peace, and I was watching, and then there were none. Because uh, <laughs> I do love a murder mystery. Don't worry, we we'll watch that too. It's great, though, isn't it? Here's a very, a very kind of uh, a deep reader's problem. I was absolutely. Uh, enthralled by Agatha Christie when I was a child of about sort of 11 or 12. And my grandmother in her parlour, into which you were not allowed, which I still remember loving because it had a cat climbing into a smoked glass brandy balloon, which I was simply obsessed by. But it also had a row of Agatha Christie's. Mm. And I just read them all. And I'm not going to give anything away for people who still want to catch up with this bit of TV. But about halfway through the second episode of And Then There Were None, I thought, I know who did this. <laughs> it's all coming back to me. I am not 11 and 11 was not uh, a short while ago in my life. But somehow, do we think that sort of muscle memory of a plot somehow embeds itself? Well, to, to tell the light of that, my, my wife was watching it and she had watched a previous TV adaptation of it and she said 
I can't remember who did it. Why can I not remember who did it, even though I've seen it before? And then she could remember, but she could only remember which actor had done it. And I can't remember. I think it might have been Sir John Mills or somebody. But she couldn't remember which character he'd played. So, she, you know, it wasn't really any help. So she, she sat there and she watched dutifully all, I think it was three episodes, that one, wasn't it, over three nights. Um, she, she's become a bit of an Agatha Christie obsessive recently. She's into the, the whole whodunit thing and the plotting. Um, I'm 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 rubbish, you see, because I just don't care who did it. I watch those things and I kind of go. Nah. What you're looking at the costumes? Well, they're just kind of and the I, very I, very nice interiors. I don't like to really solve puzzles when I'm watching TV because I'm I'm just gullible. So I'll believe whatever you tell me, and I know that eventually you will tell me who did it. I I just don't want to have to sit there and work it out. So I'm, they're not they're a bit wasted on me, I'm afraid. As I said, higher intellectual <laughs> pressure. Uh, will we must turn our our attention forward now, mustn't we? Mm. Rather than chit-chatting about telly what we watched at Christmas. Um, This is a pretty packed publishing programme, as it is every year. Um, We've got some highlights as chosen by by booksellers, haven't we? Yeah, I just, you know, we have those articles that often appear in newspapers at the beginning of the year telling you about books that are coming up, and it can be a bit confusing because you don't know much about them. But telly who does know about books are booksellers. They've been reading them for months, haven't they? They've been reading copies. copies And they hear about them from the publishers. So what I decided to do was to to take my microphone out onto the streets of London and to find some booksellers and ask them to tell me what were the books that they were really excited about in 2016. And here they are. Hi, I'm Lucy from Waterstones in Tottenham Court Road. Um, So this year there's a few books I'm looking forward to. So first off, The Girls by Emma Klein, which just looks like it's going to be fantastic. And I've heard fantastic things from people who have had the chance to read it already. Um, A Quiet Life by Natasha Walter, who I'm really intrigued to read her fiction since I studied her whilst doing my dissertation um, with Living Dolls. So I want to see if that kind of really strong feminism comes through in her fiction writing as well. And then uh, Vinegar Girl by Anne Tyler, which uh, Taming of the Shrew is one of my favourites. So looking forward to seeing what she does with that. My name is Sheila O'Reilly from Dulwich Books in South London. And my two picks for 2016 are two debut novels. The first would be um, a thriller published in January called The Widow by Fiona Barton. And it's a book that'll grab you from the start. And I think it'll also you know, question your judgment. It'll test your morals. Um, it's, it's, it's a tale that's actually probably could easily be in, in real life. And I think it's going to be one of the best selling books of next year. And the second novel is is published in the summer, and it's The Girls by Emma Klein. And it's a stunning debut with incredible writing. And for anyone who had a summer where you weren't sure who you loved, who loved you, you were fed up with your parents, fed up with life, and just were drifting, this is this is the book for you. It just took me right back to my teenage years in a, in a sort of frightening way. And... Um, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was, it was, it's brilliant writing. Hello, I'm Jonathan Rupin at Foils. I'm the web editor here. Um, books I'd really like to recommend for 2016. Um, I'll start with a wonderful debut short story collection by Daisy Johnson called Fen, which is uh, set in Fens of East Anglia. All the, all the stories are, and it's it's weird and wonderful. And they are stories that really get under your skin in a in a in, that, in a way that makes them follow you around for days afterwards I'm still only part way through the collection but they are really sticking with me um, I'm still new to discovering what's really great in terms of short stories having read being blown away by Lucia Berlin's collection last year but this is this is a really splendid debut collection um, 
The other novel or the other piece of fiction that I'm really looking forward to is Graham Swift's new novella, which is called Mothering Sunday. Uh, it's set just after, after the First World War, and it's very much about um, two um, upper-class families and the way that their lives are totally turned upside down and changed irrevocably uh, by the events of one day. Um, in terms of the non-fiction, I'm very much looking forward to the follow-up to um, Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, which I gather is called Homo Deus. It's out in the summer, and he carries on where he left off, left off in Sapiens, um, talking about what the future of mankind is likely to be um, and uh, what are going to be the big jumps in terms of how our civilization is going to work and how our society is going to work. Hi, my name is Katerina and I work at Waterstones, Tottenham Court Road. And I will be picking, um, talking about three books that I'm really excited to be reading this year. Um, one of them is Hot Milk by Deborah Levy. And the second one is Fragments by Elena Ferranti and Autumn by Ali Smith. I think they're all excellent writers and I love non-fiction as well, so I'm very excited. I'm David Headley and I'm the Managing Director of Girls for Books uh, in London. Two books that I'm excited about that are coming out very soon include The North Water by Ian Maguire. Um, the North Water is about a whaling ship that goes up to the Arctic Circle. Um, it's freezing cold, it's wet, it's dangerous in more ways than one. Um, it's about two characters who come from very different backgrounds um, and bad things start to happen. It's extraordinary, beautifully told, um, uh, and I loved it. The second book is Anatomy of a Soldier by Harry Parker. Each chapter is told by um, an article or a piece of equipment that is linked to a soldier. It's a visceral, brilliant tale um, of war, um, just outstanding, most remarkable book. Hi, I'm Jenny at Waterstones, Tottenham Court Road. Uh, this year looks very exciting for new books. The first that I'm desperate to come out is Some Rain Must Fall by Carl of Nausgaard. Um, it's the penultimate volume of the hugely addictive autobiographical series that he's been writing. I can't wait for that one. <laughs> um, next one, we've had a lot of uh, really interesting books about the new wave of feminism. Uh, Laura Bates, the author of Everyday Sexism, is releasing a book called Girl Up, which looks absolutely brilliant, um, all about body image and representations of women in the media. Uh, can't wait for that one as well. The last one, a <laughs> uh, little bit off the wall, Total Intoxication by Norman Ola. Uh, came out in Germany last year and it's about um, how drugs were at the heart of the Nazi project. Should be very interesting and a little bit controversial. <laughs> now that's a very good selection of books, isn't it? Varied, I think we will agree. Hugely varied. Were there any there that tickled your fancy? Well, it's very funny that mention of Karl over Knausgaard. Yes. Uh, whose new book thudded onto my doormat. <laughs> and I'm I'm just gonna say this that now we've established that I'm I'm the lightweight in this partnership. I looked at it and I thought, 
oh my god you're kidding like another <laughs> because it was so oh, big so huge and another installment uh but it is irresistible it is irresistible and i'll tell you what i think about this book i don't want to give too much away because i'm sure we'll talk about it another time but for those people who have read this series from the beginning book five starts to really pay back the reader because you get these echoes of earlier scenes from the books and these images that start to recur and you will only really appreciate them if you've read episodes one to four so I I felt very vindicated as a reader. I felt like I was getting special richness and, and treats because I had read all of the books previously. I think it's great. It's it's so funny and so interesting as ever. Yes, this is very much uh, the kind of thing that people also say about Elena Ferrante. When mm. I say the kind of people, I mean me, yeah. a great Ferrante <laughs> fan. And I particularly, um, I oppose the idea that... Uh, Women are for Ferranti and men are for Knausgaard, mm. even though even though that's that's how we're sort of uh, talking at the minute. But um, you're right; you've got to be in it for the long haul. It's sort of these these long series; they are a kind of marriage. They last longer than some marriages, indeed. Well, I, yes, I mean, I think I didn't realise when I started that I was going to be really committing to such a long publishing project. But here we are, five years later, and having been somebody who read an early proof not working for Vintage, and now here I am on, on the inside, so I get to see uh, an even earlier proof. Yeah, you joined <laughs> up as a civilian, This is you? basically why I did this. I, I've, I've started working here so that I could get Knausgaard earlier than anybody else, <laughs> and the, the plan has worked. <laughs> Anything else that you're looking forward to? Um, there are. Uh, it's really interesting. The Girls by Emma Klein was mentioned by a couple of booksellers there, and I read that book at the end of last year and because I had a chance to speak to Emma when she came over from the States, and... It is. N- I'm being absolutely honest here. It is not a book that I think I would have picked up off the shelf because I would have thought it's about a girl growing up in 60s California. Why, why would I be interested in that? It is so good. It's so, so brilliant. And I now feel like I completely understand the thought process of a sort of early teenage girl in 60s California. It's just completely evocative and immersive and really bowled me over. So that is a book I will be probably going on about a bit this year. Now there's another book which I know we've we've both read and indeed you've read twice courtesy of a very long train <laughs> delay. Tell us more. So as I said I used to get very excited as a blogger when sort of getting hold of advanced copies of books and one of those uh, that this year I was very really excited about was the fact there's going to be a new Julian Barnes book. And uh, The Noise of Time is, is the novel which is uh, coming at the very end of January. And I read it before Christmas, and then I wanted to reread it because I knew we might talk about it. And my train last night got stuck in a tunnel for three hours, which almost gave me enough time to read the whole book. I had actually read about 100 pages and finished the other 80 uh, in the tunnel. Um, It's a fabulous book, and I think one of the things that I noticed straight away was that my shoulders dropped as soon as I started reading it because... I felt like I was reading a book by somebody who really knows how to write. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I I think there's probably... I I asked on Twitter, what's the German compound word for the way that your shoulders relax when you know you're in the hands of a master, you know? Because... Have you got any answers to that? No, I didn't, I'm afraid. It's time to make one up. I'm sure Julian Barnes might be able to help us with the word. But it's just straight away from page one, you feel like you're in very good hands. And this is a, a short book which doesn't have any spare flesh on it at all and every single sentence matters and reading it the second time I felt exactly the same way I felt that I was there was it's like having a really nice rich meal there's not too much of it but it really satisfies you and I felt like I learned a lot 
it is about Shostakovich, but it's not it's not a non-fiction book about Shostakovich. It's exactly what you'd want from a novel about a man whose life has been presented in a certain way by the powers that be in Russia. And this kind of looks underneath that about power and control and art in a totalitarian state. It is just fascinating yes it's it it is and you know just to be to state something rather obvious in a way it's not really a book about music although there's a great deal of music in it Mm. it is a book about creativity and the compromises that you have to make in order to continue to be an artist in a totalitarian regime but what they do to you over a very long time I mean this is sort of the whole of Shostakovich's life really Mm. um but it is as we we've said it's a very concise book uh and it's sort of episodic, isn't it? It kind of hops around. It doesn't have that sort of linear, uh, joined-up kind of writing in it. Mm. But it just gives you these wonderful sort of vignettes, in a way. Yeah, that's that's a great word, actually, because you, you get these little sections, and it hops around. And I found the book, in many ways, terrifying to read. I mm. was so scared on his behalf, because he talks about... Well, he's writing about terror, isn't yeah. he? He's, he's describing what it is to be terrified. To be terrified and, and to have no control over your destiny, to not know whether you are in favour or out of favour at any given moment. And he talks about his conversations with power, and the word power is always capitalised. You know, it's sort of... It's almost like 1984 or something like that. You always feel as though you're reading something almost fable-like. There's a point where he says... Um, the time when people stopped telling the truth because telling the truth got you killed which just you know makes my heart sort of freeze because it just i can't we can't imagine what it might be like to live in a society like that when we live in a relatively free one you know in the uk where people are allowed to say and do pretty much whatever they want as you say in order to survive as an artist in stalin's russia you you had very little choice about what what you wrote or spoke about and in fact in that book, he's signing his name to letters and articles that he hasn't written, but which he has to sign with his name in order to sort of toe the party line. Yes, the caprices of power are very terrifying, aren't mm. they? The fact that one day you're celebrated and the next day you're on the list of dangerous mm. persons. And that wonderful opening, and this this isn't a spoiler because it, it is how the book opens, really, uh, of him standing with his suitcase packed, mm. fully clothed for, for the outdoors, next door to the lift in his apartment block simply because he doesn't want his child to see him being taken away by the secret police. So he basically wants to be arrested Mm. next to the lift shaft. Mm. Absolutely compelling. And night after night standing, waiting. Terrifying. Mm. I think that book's going to going to find a lot of a lot of acclaim. I mean, it really compelled me, um, and uh, and I think we both very much enjoyed it. But now we're going to immerse ourselves in the world of poetry. Yes, and I see at the end of our last podcast, we spoke about Andrew McMillan's success at the Guardian First Book Award. There has been more poetry success, uh, this time for Sarah Howe, who has added to her honours with the T.S. Eliot Prize, which was announced this week. And, uh, and Let's first, just be clear, one of the big ones. Well, a huge, huge prize. And also, I think worth pointing out, uh, the first time a debut collection of poetry has ever won that prize. I'm talking about her like she's not here, but she's actually here with us. She today. is here. Hello. Sarah, you're here, aren't you? Fresh from the party, almost. Uh, yes, fresh and exhausted from the party, I think. <laughs> We're going to talk about, about the collection Loop of Jade, but, but just just indulge us, us who haven't won major poetry <laughs> prizes, what, what it was like. 
Um, it was quite an exhausting whirlwind of a thing, really, because it happens over two days, which I think is actually humane to split up the really charged reading at the Royal Festival Hall, which happens on the Sunday night. Um, and then you can just focus on that. And, and then by the time it's Monday and the drinks party, uh, you're sort of ready to let go and unwind. Um, and so in the uh, V&A uh, Renaissance Sculpture Gallery when they said my name I was really really startled uh, I really hadn't expected that to happen Well you were one of the debut uh, poets on the on this there was a, another but there were some really really big names on there as well weren't there? Oh yeah I mean that that's why it was so startling really it was sort of a uh, Miss World are they saying the right name here? <laughs> sort of thing. Um, I mean when you look at the rest of that short list of 10 uh, with people like um, Don Patterson, Claudia Rankine, really, really big and amazing names. And I'm just trying not to think about the back list of winners. It's quite daunting when you sort of get into all the Nobel laureates and former poet laureates and, and things. Um, I think I might have to... Uh, Go live in a hole and unwind for a little while. Well, um, certainly have a breather, but please don't go and live in a hole. Um, just tell us a little bit about, I mean, by day, you're an academic, aren't you? You're a, a Renaissance scholar. How did you come to write this, this collection, Loop of Jade? Well, I do have these sort of two sides to my life and identity and I guess that replicates itself in all sorts of different ways so yes I have this life where I teach English for a living and I suppose my poetry writing was something that for a long time happened under the radar and it's only in the last couple of years that I've started almost acknowledging in public that side of my activity and when I say under the radar I mean like it was this intensely private thing for me that writing many of these poems was something that happened oh, over the course of the last decade, but in evenings or early mornings and at the edges of my official life. You mentioned the word identity there, and that is very much at the heart of, of these poems, mm. isn't it? Just just explain a bit about the sort of uh, the, the personal dynamic of, of, of this work. Yeah, I, I suppose the book is very much concerned with sort of hybrid and multiple and complicated identities which I think is how I perceive and feel the reality of the world and our society today because I guess all of us are hybrid um, however far back you want to go um, so yeah th this book was sort of me asking the question who am I um, and, and this came out as the answer because uh, I was born in Hong Kong, my dad is English, my mother is Chinese, um, and then when I was seven, my family moved to England. And I suppose I've spent the rest of my life trying to make sense of, of that relocation, dislocation, um, especially in recent years going back to Hong Kong and China and trying to work out what my relationship with those places, which I guess you could say are another home, um, could be. Well, I guess there is the additional um, situation that Hong Kong in itself, not part of mainland China, um, its identity changed, of course. And I mean, you re you remember that, didn't you, as, as part of your childhood? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you asked that, actually, because I think um, many people don't sort of think about that distinction between Hong Kong um, and its, its own um, self-conception, uh, which is often 
sort of difficultly in opposition to China, actually. Mm. Um, well, then we, I mean, we see it right now. Yeah, yeah. A- absolutely. I mean, right this week, last week, with the disappearing booksellers like Li Bo, it's an intensely uh, charged and frightening time in Hong Kong. Um, and lots of those currents to do with worries about freedom and censorship are at the heart of my book's preoccupations, actually. Um, and yeah, as you say, I grew up in the 80s and 90s in Hong Kong, very much under the shadow of the countdown to the handover back to China in 1997. And that countdown sort of was the clock to my own life, that I was always told by my parents that we were coming home to England. I knew that move was going to happen. Um, but I found it strange... Uh, even then, that my mum would say we're coming home, not her given home that at all. it's not her home no. at all. She'd never lived in England, and I think I didn't appreciate until quite recently just how difficult that move must have been for her to leave everything she knew behind. Whereas I just sort of took it in naively as as the thing to, that we were doing. And obviously, you then grew up. You said you were seven. Um, you know, all sorts of things still to come in your life, all sorts of growing up um, scenarios. And you grow up at school with an awareness of, of, of having a different background to many of the people that you're at school with. Yes, I guess that was something that struck me very starkly, being sort of parachuted into an English primary school playground in the middle of the year and being this sort of curious oddity and people asking me if I spoke Hong Kongese and... Um, doing slitty eyes and so on. I, I guess that sudden appreciation of my difference and otherness was quite strange. But I guess the the funny thing about that is because I'm mixed race, I find that my experience of how other people see me is sort of an optical illusion. Like people perceive me in very different ways. Some people perceive me as entirely English, some people and white, some people perceive me as entirely Chinese. Um, and others aren't so sure what to make of me. Um, and I guess that sort of slipperiness of reference is yeah, something that, that goes into these poems and my sense of uh, the difficulty of categorising, maybe. It's a question that comes up over and again with all kinds of writing and, and art, in fact, of how much you use the work that you create to sort of work through these mm-hmm. issues, how much you're trying to create something other out of it, mm-hmm. um, how much it's in a sense, I won't use the word therapeutic, but it's sort of cathartic. It's a way to kind of examine issues. Was that how it was for you? Did you actually sort of want to answer questions by doing this sort of work? I very much did. Um, But interestingly, I'd say that almost the cathartic work of this book, if there is any, which I sort of hope there is, wasn't so much to do with me, but it became reflected or bounced off myself onto other people. So it became very much about an um, an, an exercise and a practice of empathy. So many of these poems are about... I guess, confronting and trying to make sense of the experience of other people, Um, in many cases my mother, um, hearing her telling her stories about her past, which come out in this very fragmented, difficult, uh, almost psychologically hesitating way, um, and trying to cross that gulf of empathy to get into her experience. Um, I mean, your mother had a a very 
difficult early life, didn't she? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of hard to say, given that, I guess, post-war Hong Kong was a smashed and desolated place in lots of ways. Um, so probably many people went through the same sorts of hardships and experiences that she did. I guess um, the particular hook that always haunted me about her um, childhood was the fact that we don't entirely know but by all likelihood she was given up or abandoned as a tiny baby because she was a girl um, because of this historical preference in Chinese culture and in many other cultures for boys Um, and that sort of thorn of upset and anger on my part she's remarkably stoical about it you know I mean she really doesn't hold any rage um it, it it's me who who felt like mm. i wanted to think about that dynamic um and 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 try to think about how i could commune with ancestors who i have no idea who they are so there there, there is that idea that one sort of carries displacement through generations and that kind of difficulty but you can interrogate it in in art yeah i i suppose in quite an extreme way for me i I have this predicament which all of us eventually have whereby we can't really find out. There's a limit to what we can find out about the past, isn't there? Um, It's just, for me, that comes quite early because um, going back further than my mum is an absolute blank. So that sort of opened up this, I guess, imaginative space for me, which um, this book filled of, of, of trying to think what is my family's my Chinese family's past and that means that much of the book happens not only at this personal level of my mum's um, early life but also reaches out into Chinese history so the first emperor burying scholars um, Mao's cultural revolution the Tiananmen massacre which I was five when that happened Um, do you have a, a recollection I do I have a there's actually a poem about that very recollection um, in the book, because I remember almost too vividly, actually, um, being taken as a five-year-old to a solidarity protest that was happening in Hong Kong in the biggest sort of open space, which happened to be the um, racetrack of the Hong Kong, well, then the Royal Hong Kong Jockey Club. Um, and this poem is about confronting the fact that we were at this protest where people were so elated they thought this was days before the massacre happened they really thought that china might remake itself into a sort of democratic future in the image of what what hong kong wanted um its future to be and and so when the images of the tanks came on the tv a few days later it it was just i i even I, i guess i was too small to really understand what was happening but i knew something important had happened just just tell me why poetry why has why not write a memoir about this why not turn it into prose fiction mm. why did poetry speak to you i'm wondering if it is something to do with the fragmentary nature of, of experience absolutely i think um poetry accommodates a sort of ex- spirit of experiment and playfulness which i guess maybe Uh, the established shapes of prose make more difficult. So I think it's very much something to do with 
the elliptical nature of the story I wanted to tell because that's how it came down to me in those fragments. Um, fragments that where you could really feel the pressure of the silence which becomes the white space of the page bearing down around them. Um, and, and so that's why um, I needed to be able to play around with these shapes and forms on the page, I think. And there's perhaps something also to do with, with different languages and different language traditions and the sort of pressure on language, in a sense, I wonder if yeah. is that, that really comes up in, in the book. Absolutely, and I guess that's actually quite a complex thing in the book because on the one hand... Um, there are Chinese characters in the margin. I'm trying to uh, think about the history of Chinese poetry and what it's meant to the English tradition um, through people like Ezra Pound and so on. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I only spoke the barest smattering of baby Cantonese um, in, in Hong Kong as a child. My mum always spoke to me in English and I've never quite been able to get to the bottom with her of why that was. But I think it may be, I'm speculating, plays into that dynamic of things you might not want to pass on to your children. Um, uh, and she's quite equivocal, I suppose, about uh, me reconnecting with my Chinese heritage. I think it frightens her in lots of ways. So um, I actually learnt Chinese, um, not Cantonese, my mum's dialect, but Mandarin as an adult at SOAS. Um, so this book sort of charts my path from listening as a child to my mum speaking and people speaking all around me, a language I didn't understand, to very slowly and painfully and effortfully coming to have my own connection with that language. I'm sure you're too modest to say this, but just talking to you for a few minutes sort of answers the question of why people have found so much in this book. There is just so much in it, so many different um elements feeding in and such a sort of intensity of kind of trying to get to the bottom of them. I wonder before I let you go if you would if you would read a poem for us. Oh it would be a pleasure. Um, I thought I'd read a little love poem from my husband called Frenzied. Maybe holding back is just another kind of need. I am a blue plum in the half light. You are a tiger who eats his own paws. The day we married, all the trees trembled as if they were mad. Be kind to me, you said. Sarah, many thanks. Thank you. The literary landscape in Britain has changed a lot in the years since the end of the First World War. Changes in publishing as fundamental as the paperback and the e-book have been accompanied by a shift away from the traditional man of letters, to the rise of the book blogger and reviews on websites. Joining me now is a very modern man of letters, DJ Taylor, whose new book, The Prose Factory, looks at this fascinating history of how literary taste is shaped and formed and the extraordinary characters who've played their part in it. Welcome, David. Good to be here. Is that a sort of accurate summation of your book because it's a very very complex and wide-ranging book actually. I'm afraid it's a very long book and somewhat abstruse but yes I think you've more or less hit the, uh, hit the nail Don't on the head Don't be afraid there. we like long and we love abstruse. Oh I do too. <laughs> um, essentially it's about two things and uh, in a rather cack-handed way of wielding them together I think. It's about the idea of literary culture and what do we mean by it? Where does it come from? How does it work? Who's in it? How, do you, how does it operate? Uh, and I, I, I define literary culture, I think, as, as being um, the entire process of how a book 
is conceived, written, published, issued, reviewed, how it then seeps into the wider landscape. So that's the first part of it. The second is, um, what has happened to literary taste in more or less the last hundred years? Because the, the reading public, if there was such a thing in the mid-19th century, uh, certainly at its upper levels, was a very closely internet and very tightly defined group of people, probably not more than a few thousand. And I think the total lifetime sales of Vanity Fair in Thackeray's lifetime were 10,000 copies. That was the extent of the reading public. Now, after when, when the mass media arrived, which it began certainly in print terms at the end of the 19th century, all this became much more diffuse, and um, all kinds of people began all, to read all kinds of things in a much more less regulated way. All this is fascinating. So it's a book about writers and how they get by and the kind of conditions... Uh, the kind of social, creative, economic environment in which they operate. But it's also a book about readers and how they work and how the kind of forces that are at work to encourage them to make the choices that they do. Because essentially, at some point when we move beyond a sort of coterie of, of readers or a small number of what we might call serious readers, somebody had to tell people what to read. Exactly. And this worked on several levels, you see. the um, You know, you could look at the history, I suppose, of early modern, not mid-period modernism in this country in the 20s and 30s, and you could think that it was terribly hieratic, you know, a matter of T.S. Eliot and F.R. Leavis sitting on top of Mount Olympus with Virginia Woolf not too far away from and tossing these grand, you know, grand magniloquent judgments over the side for us ordinary mortals labouring on the foothills of Parnassus, shall we say, to, um, you know, to, to consider. But it also worked a long way further down the, um, down the pile. So you see you have the, the, the mid, uh, the 1920s and 30s is the age of the popular essayist. It's the age of people like J.B. Priestley minting his judgments, which are not just read by a few readers of the Criterion or some highbrow magazine. But, I mean, Priestley estimated he had an audience of a million for some of his newspapers. I mean, did essays. he? Do he probably did. He did. Yes, he did. Mm, he that brought, was a fair <coughs> estimation. And when he broadcast on the radio during the Second World War, he had an audience of tens of millions. So this is, this is a really serious communicator we're talking about here. But it also works down at the very bottom, uh, you know, down in the jungle, of a, in, in, in the terms of, you know, sort of literature which I probably don't know very much about and I don't think you do too because we've never read any of it. We don't know the people who enjoyed it, the culture, mm. the culture of weekly women's magazines in the 1920s and 30s. There were judgments being minted and cast down there. And the interesting thing, of course, is if you go back um, a little before that to the end of the 19th century, there is still the vast... You're dealing with a group of... a large, very large group of readers who were actually very suspicious of secular literature... And so had to be introduced to it. And so you. You mean they you, really thought of literature as something which had a sort of religious well, yes, dimension to a, it? There was, there was an extraordinary man who I've always been fascinated by called George Gilfillan, who was a dissenting minister from Dundee, who had, wrote a book, books called Galleries of Literary Portraits. And he's been described as the McGonagall of criticism. And he is just extraordinary. If somebody, if somebody liked his work, he would describe him as no niggard encomiast. You know, is that kind of that kind of. But the, the thing about Gilfillan was that he came, as did, his, you know, as did the people who read his criticism. Uh, and these books were still being reprinted and circulated in the 1920s and 30s, these galleries of literary portraits. And his, his constituency came to books, to secular literature, from the Bible. And so Gilfillan's best-selling book was, I think, called Bards of the Bible or something mm. like that. He just assumed that the psalmist or the psalmist were poets. 
democracy and sort of went on from there. So you, you have a, you have a, a, a there's a new, the, the, what I call sort of kind of the nonconformist tradition in British literature, which whose influence is huge and immense, you know, seeped all the way through H.G. Wells and people like that, comes from this group of people who actually come to literacy fairly late. And when they came to literacy, they came to it through... Through religion. Through religion. Mm, mm. And they thought there was a purpose to it. There was a a reason for reading. And this tradition lasts deep into the 20th century. So that's what I mean by working right down in the boondocks of literary taste. So in other words, what you're sort of saying is that literary culture, as I I might conceive of it, as this sort of uh, something to do with what what people say are good novels. And I suppose also the formation of a canon on the one hand and also the sort of immediate response to the books that are being published all the time. That's right. You see, you had the, the great difficulty of of anybody who writes about books uh, who, for a living, which is, is part of, I suppose, part of what I do for a living, that um, on the one hand, there lie on your shelves all these great works of genius, which in an, you know, an idle, relaxing moment you will want to consult. There sit Proust, Thackeray, you know, whomsoever you, you like. And then there are the books that you're getting in the post and asked to pronounce almost immediate judgment on in the spate of three or four days. And, and is this a timeless classic? Is this just some book that might divert me for 20 minutes? You don't know. And so uh, Orwell once said, I think, it's a very, very useful remark that the, the average literary critic had to find a spring balance that was capital, ca- capable of weighing an elephant and a flea at the same time because that's the, that's the kind of task on which you're embarked a lot of the time. Do you think it's it's grandiose? Because what you're saying has a sort of uh, incredible kind of resonance uh, for me. I, I've spent a lot of my life reviewing books and so I feel I'm, I'm sort of taking this all kind of super seriously do you, you think know it's, all about this, it's Alex, sort of you, grandiose you're... of me to sit there thinking mm. what I say about this mm. novel that has come through the post and someone has asked me to write a thousand words on is re- you know I've got to take this really seriously you've got to take it seriously of course you have but is that grandiose do people just want me to say yeah, enjoyed it. Thumbs up. Go, you know, worth nine ninety nine. No, I think people want you to. Uh, again, I'm not. I'm not being pretentious about this. I think people want you to put your all into it. I think they mm. want you to try and show some enthusiasm, if there is enthusiasm to be shown. I think they want you to engage with it at the very top of your game. Otherwise, you're not. I mean, Oberon War, who I have a great deal of respect for, um, uh, once remarked that, uh, and he was a journeyman book reviewer as well as being a polemical journalist, and he said that. Uh, a book reviewer stands or fall on, falls on the enthusiasm of his or her response because, you know, you're not in a seminar room with FR Leavers. Um, you're trying to tickle the fancy of somebody perhaps reading a newspaper or a magazine who may not have, you know, not know very much about books but, but, but likes to read something. And so you're having to guide that person. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, <coughs> I'm not suggesting it's a sacred duty, but it's, it's important it's something that it that one wants to take seriously. I mean, mm. my view on these things is always that if you don't, then sort of by kind of increments, literary culture and then in fact writing itself becomes sort of imperiled. I mean, that is a very grandiose thing to say. But you have to take it seriously because we believe in fiction, don't we? It's what we it's what we do. It's what I do. I mean, I I I, I will admit in you know in, in the writing of this this book, I will I will concede to a certain amount of bias because the writers that I like the writers whom I've always admired, even writers of, of genius, whatever that word actually means, they've pretty much all been hacks, strictly mm. defined. They've all had, always had to write for a living. Um, you know, I mean, Thackeray was a hack. George Orwell was a hack. Evelyn Waugh was a hack. Mm. 
um, you know, to where you can talk at the end of his life, even more was zealously sort of negotiating foreign cruisers where, with, whereby he could get his expenses paid and then write some articles for the Daily Mail and put the money into what he called the Save the Children Fund. Aren't we? We're, we're in a proud tradition of I'm proud to, to so have, I like, hack on my business I'm card. So you should be. Mm. You see, I mean, it used to be. I mean, Randolph Churchill, Winston Churchill's son, once sued. I think the News of the World for describing him as a hack, and won. It was actionable in the 1950s. But I'm proud, you know, I'm 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 proud to belong to that Grub Street tradition because I I think it's a more fertile and in some ways a more, a much, obviously a much more accessible one uh, than you know the university tradition, which I think is is pretty much gathered up a lot of English literature, and it's ravening more over the last 30 or 40 years. Tell me what you mean by that. What I mean by that is that, as we all know, it's, it's, if, you, if you want to write for a living, it's increasingly difficult because, um, uh, you know, the people who get books, who read books online, expect them to be de- de- delivered for free, just like anything else. Uh, it's, it's much more difficult to make a living being a writer. I mean, the number of what we would call literary novelist, inverted commas, which is not actually a, um, a description I like very much, but it, it will do, it's serviceable. The number of literary novelists in this country who can actually make a living out of their writing can't be much more than a dozen, I would have thought. If that, that's how difficult it is. And so if you want to write, uh, you know, the novel that's going to knock Proust into a cocked hat, you've got to find some way of subsidising your endeavours. Now, in the old days, it was possible to make a living, a pretty good living, out of literary journalism at its top end. There was a lot more, there was money to be made out of the BBC, there, or you could work in an advertising agency. Uh, Salman Rushdie did successfully at the beginning of his career. Now, that's a lot harder than it used to be, and increasingly the tendency is for novelists um, you know, reaching early middle age, where the, what Cyril Connolly called the pram in the hall is sitting there. You know, there are what there are there are other halves, there are children, there are mortgages, and in, the increasingly common resort of the writer of that age is to go and work in university uh, and teach creative writing, um, <clears throat> which is fine. You know, marvel. I mean, as um, as has been pointed out, universities are the new patrons of English literature in the way that they didn't used to be 40, 50 years ago. But the danger of that, of course, is that as a writer, you spend all your time uh, in administration. And essentially, in the end, however much you, you may or may not resist this process, you become institutionalized. You become a kind of glorified civil servant. And uh, university creative writing departments become glorified employment bureaus. Um, I'm not condemning this or criticizing it particularly. It's an absolutely inevitable aspect of the way the literary world is developing but as someone who's you know been a member of what Thackeray used to call the corporation of the goose quill for the last 30 years <laughs> I, I I fear the academy I I resent its influence mm. um, I acknowledge its influence and I acknowledge that it um, you know it's in it plays an invaluable part in keeping a certain kind of literary culture going but I I you know I, I deprecate it you think it's it's something that has become somehow kind of detached from readers? I mean, we started talking about readers. Is that is that the issue, It's not think? so much that it's become detached from readers because obviously it's in encouraging or it's purportedly encouraging readers. But with the best will in the world, a university, however much it engages with the environment beyond the window, is a little bubble, mm. a little bubble of um, subsidy and, um, <clears throat> and uh, lecture rooms and, and seminar and... Toy- and um, this can be very fruitful and very useful for the writer, but there's nothing like... I, I've always thought there's... If you're writing your first novel, um, there's nothing like having to get up to for two hours early in the morning and write it and then go to work and then come back and then sit and write it for another couple of hours in the evening because it really concentrates your mind and it really makes what you're doing seem important, I think, and, and kind of crucial to your existence. 
I mean, I, I suppose you could say that a newspaper is another kind of bubble. I mean, albeit one without subsidy, but, <clears throat> you know, it's another kind of world within a world. What we see now is people freed from those kind of worlds mm. and those bubbles, although they're in a sort of bubble of their own their own subjectivity in a way, but they are mm. writing directly about books. I'm talking about bloggers and all sorts of ways in which people broadcast their views mm. about mm. books. What effect do you think that has had on the idea of literary culture? Has it fragmented it to a point where it's not really doesn't really exist it's anymore? Obviously it's fragmented it because all kinds all forms of culture are fragmenting. You know, music has gone the same way. There's no mainstream anymore. There's several different kinds of sort of minor mini mainstreams and and this kind of and every so often something coalesces and you get an artifact that could just about be described as, you know, appealing to, to all parts of this uh, particular quadrant. Um what it people talk about the democratization of literature, which I always find very, very suspect term. You know, the idea there's all these cheap books piled up in supermarkets. That's democracy. No, it isn't. It's actually a restriction of choice because it just means there's going to be more copies of fewer things. Mm. Um, <clears throat> when you take that out into cyberspace, I mean, on the one hand, it's great that people are, you know, conveying, imparting their likes and dislikes about literature. That's what it's all about. It's about ordinary people, ordinary readers saying what they like and what they don't like. Um, and um, the, the other, the adverse side of that problem is that um, it's a kind of sort of free for all, where there is no kind of critical authority anymore. There's nobody sort of giving leads or steers. And um, I always find this, I think it's very interesting. I think to make comparisons with other forms of um, what might loosely be called entertainment, because the the attitude of you know, the online bloggers. And, you know, fair enough, there are no finite, you know, there is no right or wrong answer about a book's merits or, it, or whether it's any good or any bad. But um, out there in cyberspace, um, the opinion of the blogger is as valuable as the, the opinion of, I don't know, Professor Christopher Ricks, because we've each, you know, got our own opinion. And I always find this very amusing, because if uh, you transfer this across, say, into the world of sport, your average punter watching Match of the Day wants to see Alan Shearer on it. He doesn't want to see somebody plucked from the terraces and asked to give his opinion of you know, the game of football. And to, that's not elitist to say that. It's just a question of... A question of expertise. Expertise, mm. yes. You know, if there are... And, and um, of course, this is, this is all part of a much wider cultural process involving... <laughs> you know, the interrogation of the canon and, and this kind of thing. And the but idea I, of gatekeepers, isn't uh, it? Gatekeepers. Yeah. But when, um, when I read, as one sometimes does, an Amazon reviewer who remarks that he or she didn't like this particular book because, quote, I couldn't relate to the central character, then my attitude is just perhaps you should sort of sit down and see what it is you actually want from a book mm. and whether you're getting it because that is such a banal remark. You know, the idea of not liking a book because you don't relate to its central character... Um, well, you know, of course, I, I we I read books because we don't want to relate to the central character sometimes, or I can't. can't you no, know. I, I find I, that's when I start to have problems. Mm. And I start to have problems with the Amazon reviewers who don't know when a book is a novel or a biography. Um, because you have to have a... And this has happened. I remember pointing this out once to Amanda Foreman that someone had reviewed her on Amazon, her book about uh, the Duchess of Devonshire, thinking it was a novel. Um, now... Um, so what I mean is that you need a certain amount of basic knowledge before you can start. Um, yes, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know, you know whether you can't play tennis without just walking on by walking on a court with a racket and waving it about vaguely. I don't know whether you feel this. I mean, I often I'm a, a, as we know, reading books is terribly 
time-consuming and labour-intensive. It is. It really is. And sometimes it is extremely nice to go and lose oneself in a great big box set or, or sort of mini-series or, or comedy series. And I have no problem about with pronouncing judgment on TV series according to how much I have just enjoyed them and they passed the time for me. No, but that's a, and I've TV been series, isn't you know, it? They're TV but, series. But, we, but what I mean is I don't require myself when pronouncing judgment on something to have any degree of expertise. Telly is just something I watch and I enjoy it or but I don't enjoy it. telly is just telly. Why shouldn't books be the same though? Because books are sacred. <laughs> We know that. We know that books are sacred. I mean, there used to be uh, up on. I forget where I read this, but there's a some there's some terrible sort of rock star orgy house dive on Sunset Strip. I can't remember what it's called. Where there used to be a graffito on the wall of the gents, and it went: um, "Television is furniture, film is king, rock and roll is life." Now, books exist on the promontory above those three things. Rock and roll may well be life, but books are the you know, the condiment that make that life even sweeter, even more open to analysis and suggestion. So, you know, I mean, TV is fine. TV is fine, but it's basically, it's wallpaper, really, compared to the real... Books of the house. The books are in your head. That's the wonderful thing about... I mean, I'm an enormous fan, for example, of Mad Men. Greatest series I've seen on American, American television in the last five years. It's wonderful, and yet... Lurking behind it is the literature out of which it grows. What I mean by that, you read that and you see that it's coming from John Cheever. You see that it's coming from Richard Yates. And you realise that the subtleties and the nuances of Cheever and Yates are even greater and even more considerable and even more worth interrogating than what you're seeing on screen. I know they're two different mediums, but the literariness of Mad Men encourages me to make that kind of comparison. My final question to you, this is, is sort of comes out <clears throat> of this idea that I think that we in some ways regard ourselves as needing to be kind of evangelists for books, that we oh, need absolutely. to kind of press books upon people, not just mm. individual books, but also the idea of books. Read these books. I mean, you've just been, what I you've just been to, saying now. I used to, my, my talisman, my, my kind of touchstone, used to be George Gissing's New Grub Street, <coughs> which, of course, lurks in the background of the mm. prose factory. And when I was in my late teens, I used to give people copies of Gissing's New Grub Street as a kind of test, a piece of litmus paper, as whether they were worth being friends with. <laughs> I have to say, this is a terrible thing, but it didn't make me many friends. In fact, a no. girl, I remember a girl, when I was about 17, a girl once suggesting that I was actually like one of the characters in this book about starving hacks. And this was not them. a good thing. I didn't think it was a good thing. It I, didn't, I, don't thing think, I didn't think that she thought that it was a good thing. I may be wrong. I think she thought I'm slightly weird and obsessive. There is, there is a little piece of advice for the teenagers <clears> out there. Do not give people new Grub Street. My question really, though, is do, mm. do we always think, you know, the world is going to hell in a handcart? Or, or, in a sense, is it? I mean, what is to become of literary culture? What is becoming of it? Literary, you see, literary culture will only survive. Obviously, everybody goes on about what a wonderful age it is for readers. And that's great. It's mar- it is a wonderful age for readers because there are lots of cheap books and the, avail- you know, the availability of books is now much greater than it was. In the old days, you used to have to walk into second-hand bookshops and comb through them for copies of what you wanted. It's a great age to be a reader. It's a terrible age to be a writer. No, it's, I, 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 I Beyond I, just the fact that you can't get paid for it, do you mean? Or No, never has it been so easy to set up as a writer you know, to pronounce yourself as a writer, to do writing in whatever shape or form, never has been harder to make a living out of it. Now, ultimately, there's going to be a squeeze that means that there are fewer and fewer writers because they can't actually get their stuff published. And so it'll be a nation of amateurs. I use that in the... I don't use that in any pejorative sense. It'll be a nation of amateurs 
writing their stuff really just for the joy of writing it because there won't be any money to be made for it and there will ultimately become a point you know worst case scenario if that goes on where where will the product be that the literary culture will be will be peddling and discussing and interrogating we may say though may not we you and i not while there is breath in our body absolutely will that not. happen <coughs> no as uh, as morrissey famously remarked in 1983 I think, uh, you know, a, a lapidary epigram, you know, worthy of carving on tombstones. There's more to life than books, you know, but not much more. Thank you, David. <clears throat> on that note, many thanks for coming to talk to us about the prose package. Thank you. Well, that was fascinating stuff. Now, Will, I really want to know your response as a book blogger. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, defend yourself. Well, uh, no, it's interesting. I, look, I, I have been a book blogger. There are lots of book bloggers out there. Some are good and some are not so good. And so I understand what he means, that sort of idea about the the amateur. But some of the best book bloggers out there are really good. And I would say as good as any sort of ordained critic. And in fact, some of those book bloggers are now in the national press reviewing books. So I, I, you know, I I don't think that bloggers per se are a problem. I think that as in any sort of form, there are better and worse ones of of anything. Yes. And I I think actually that is really what David meant too. I mean, not to put words in his mouth, but I don't think he really has a problem with bloggers per se it's that no. idea of of sort of expertise and responsibility i think and you're quite right there are many absolutely brilliant bloggers yeah i think and the thing with amazon reviews we've all seen those hilarious amazon reviews where somebody just really doesn't know what they're talking about didn't arrive on time well one star people you know, that sort put of reviews thing. of books and they say oh, i didn't finish this book and they kind of go well then why are you bothering to write a review of it because you 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 don't know you haven't read it just be quiet don't leave a review um, but they're, they're good entertainment, if nothing else, but maybe not the best place to get your next book recommendation. I know what you mean. It's, it's, it's that kind of, well, this wasn't what I expected. And you think, but that's mm. what I wanted a book, not yeah. what I expect. Otherwise, Absolutely. I'd just read the same book over and over again. <laughs> um, however, what I did love and take away from, uh, from David's interview there is that books are sacred. And of course, that sounds like a sort of, uh, my word, very sort of grandiose kind of statement. But it also means something to us. We think they're important, right? We do think they're important. And that's why we feel very special when we hand them over to somebody else to read and, and are upset if they don't like them. You know, books are important. That's otherwise. why you and I are sitting in a basement talking about books. And that's what I think we'll continue to do. Shall we get together and do it again next month? Let's do it. What is you it? know what next month is, don't you? Yeah. It's it's February, so it's good. It's love o'clock. Oh, it's going to get all lovey-dovey, isn't it? Not here. No. We're too hard. Let's find another way of, of talking about love. Yeah, join us, join us next month for basically an alternative look at love. We've really enjoyed talking to our writers and I think to each other uh, today. Please do join us next month. You can listen along to this podcast and others on SoundCloud, on iTunes. My thanks, Will, and to love in February. Thank you, Alex. Love to you too.